0: All right, hey guys, welcome to Episode 6 of the Carnivore Roundtable. Uh, today we've uh, got our topic, which is gut health, with our special guest who's literally on the other side of the planet right now in Sydney, Australia, Dr. Pran Yoga Yoganathan. Uh, he's a gastroenterologist with a strong interest in the field of human nutrition. So he's a GI tract doctor, basically. Uh, he practices an approach to healthcare that assesses the lifestyle of the patient to see how it impacts on their gastrointestinal and metabolic health. Um, Dr. Nathan believes that the current day nutritional guidelines may not be based on perfect evidence, and he passionately strives to provide the most up-to-date literature in healthcare and science to provide evidence-based medicine. He is a strong motivator and aims to empower his patients to embark on a journey of self-healing using the philosophy of let, uh, let food be thy medicine. So welcome, Pran. Thank you for joining us.
1: That's a pleasure, Vijay. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, no problem. So I guess we'll just do some uh, quick intros of uh, the other co-hosts. Unfortunately, Kate, our usual host couldn't make it, so I'm taking over hosting duties along with our other co-hosts here. So my name is uh, Vajit Khan. I am a radiologist, MD, Canadian trained living in the Toronto area. I have a strong passion for disease prevention myself, seeing a lot of sick people. And you can see my cool t-shirt. I'm going to do a little promo for Sacred Cow. Which is an awesome book that's just come out about all this stuff. There's a documentary and it says, you know, it's what else do you eat, not the meat. Um, And if you zoom out, it just says eat meat, which is kind of a cool t-shirt. So uh, that's my thing. And just as a medical disclaimer, I mean, obviously a couple of us here are in the medical field, but this is not meant to be individualized, customized medical advice. So if you're listening to what we're saying, thinking about trying things out, it's important, especially if if you're on medications or have some kind of disease process going on that you consult with an MD, cause they're gonna know your specific situation or, or another clinician can help you out and, and give you some more personalized advice. So if you do anything we suggest, it's at your own risk, your own peril, but we still want you guys to maybe learn from what we have to say. Um, Alicia, do you wanna go next?
2: Sure. So my name Alicia. I'm also from the Toronto area. I have been low carb for the past three and a half years and more animal based for the past year and a half. Um, I'm just a regular person, but I have a super passion for health and nutrition. So this is just very interesting to me.
3: Awesome. And we're the meters. I'm Petra. I'm Dan. And we've been eating an animal based diet for about a year and a half and we're becoming super passionate about health.
1: Brilliant. That's excellent. Lovely to meet you guys. Yeah, you too.
0: Okay, so Pran, I'm gonna give everybody a little bit more detail and background about you about you before we get into more like meaty discussion um, for the rest <laughs> of our podcast. So, uh, sorry, I had to I had to get that pun in there. Um, but yeah, so Pran graduated from uh, graduated in medicine from the University of Otago in New Zealand. He he's an FRACP, so that's a fellowship of the uh, sorry fellow of the Royal Australian College of Physicians uh, in gastroenterology. So he's legit. Uh, he's got advanced training in Sydney teaching hospitals, uh, including um, interest in gastroenterology, hepatology, and he does endoscopy, so upper and lower colonoscopy, and special interest in uh, GERD, so gastroesophageal reflux disease, irritable bowel syndrome, or IBS, which many of you have probably heard about, and abdominal bloating. Um, and he did that at the center, of, or so he works at the Center for Gastrointestinal Health in Sydney, and I think you guys have a few locations. It seems like a fancy operation.
1: Thank you. Yeah, we do. We do have a few operations going.
0: Okay, Prince. So, I mean, that's kind of the background that we know about you. Maybe what you can tell us is maybe about your, your journey through learning about health and disease, both, you know, within formal medical training and your personal experience outside of your training, and maybe any insight or experience you've had with your own health and diet-related sort of changes over the years.
1: Sure, sure. No problems, Rajeed. Yeah, look, um, I mean, as, as you as you probably know, Rajeed, uh, medical school wasn't, wasn't exactly, um, you know, comprehensive in terms of the nutritional training aspect of it. So, you know, as, as a doctor, uh, I've been practicing now close to 20 years, Uh, approaching 40. I've been, I've been a senior doctor, a gastroenterologist for about 11 years. Um, And, and this has kind of been a self taught journey um, where uh, I've had to learn this all myself and I've learned it, you know, through some, pretty good people in the space um, uh, that are are now quite vocal about this low-carb method of eating Um, and uh, there really is a community now I think all of us connected digitally of course through various um, uh, mediums but um, uh, and that and the literature just exploring the literature for the last 30 to 40 years it's been quite interesting and eye-opening actually to know that there have been some brilliant Brilliant, brilliant trials that have been done that that really have been overlooked in favour of the more medical, medicine centric or pharmaceutically centric uh, type type studies. So uh, it's been a, a a great journey, a journey that's probably three or four years long. I mean, like most of you guys, uh, and I heard Alicia mention it, uh, we we start off as low carb, um, and and the journey just sort of becomes extremely protein heavy towards the end I think that's naturally we we feel better on most type of diets um, for most people so um, I've probably been eating this way now approaching two years um, where where it's primarily sort of a meat-based or a fish-based diet and um, look it's just from from a physical perspective a, a mental mental perspective I just think this is the diet that that optimizes me. Um, it may not be for for everyone to this degree that some of us are doing it at, but um, I, I think there is a um, great deal of research that needs to be done in the future and, and I think the future is exciting.
0: Yeah, for sure. Totally agree. I think, yeah, same with me. Like I, we didn't get much of nutrition in med school. I think they taught us about some random nutritional deficiencies that you almost never see. And then I literally remember that a couple moments they told us diabetes is a chronic, progressive, irreversible disease, which is obviously untrue. We know that you can reverse it obviously with dietary change. Um, And they also said, yeah, you know, patients don't really listen to Lifestyle and medical advice. Sorry, not lifestyle. But lifestyle and fitness advice, and so just give them this prescription for these drugs as a knee-jerk reaction, which didn't really sit right with me at the time. And and I mean, like you, I've gone on a journey of sort of self-discovery, trying to sort out my own health, how I feel, trying to feel better. So I, I totally resonate with with all the stuff you said and your whole experience as well.
1: Yeah, thanks, Rajeev. And and you know the 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 reason I got into this space as a gastroenterologist just. The, the predominance of, of, of gut-based symptoms which are primarily d- driven by carbohydrate in particular with things like we, we see a lot of irritable bowel a lot of bloating a lot of a lot of lot of reflux and and uh, often it's in in people that are metabolically unwell and um that that kind of led me down this path of low carbohydrate approaches and and what was interesting was um, applying these approaches to them, not only help them with their diabetes or their metabolic profile, it helped resolve their symptoms. So it's, it's been a really good way to practice for me, something that's been fun to do because of the, the obviously, the, the uh, positive outcomes that people get and the, and the patients um, and the clients have loved it because it's kind of moving them away from that that medicine centric model. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of them get off a lot of their, their pills, uh, in particular the proton pump inhibitors, which ideally love to get most people off. Um, and, um, yeah, it's, it's just a, it's just been a great way to practice, but, um, it's gotten to a point now with, with my specific practice or, or our group of practices where we've had to bring on board, um, dieticians to help us with this because it's just, the need for it is huge. Let's put it that way. The community need for it is massive. So um, I work with a, with a team of fantastic dieticians, um, which has really made my life a hell of a lot easier.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, I guess on that note, Alicia, do you want to go with the first question there?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, my first question is just how do you recommend that your patients eat? And how do you eat?
1: Sure. Um, with regards to how I eat, I'll answer that first, if that's okay, Alicia, and then I could potentially lead it on to um, how we recommend it for our patients with, um, with the way I do it. I think I've naturally um, naturally gravitated towards a, a sort of a 16, eight approach, a 16 hours of fasting and an eight hour eating window um, about four years ago when I first started this journey I was probably carrying in excess of four to five kilos it wasn't much uh but I started with the once a day eating approach the OMAD as it's known or eating within a two to four hour window and that worked really well for a while it really allowed me to become insulin sensitive quite quickly lose a lot of body fat um but towards maybe a year into that journey I just noticed um muscle loss it wasn't wasn't huge but it was definitely subtle and it was there and i just noted that the energy levels weren't there um and uh the ability to sort of perform at the gym various aches and pains uh, I, I realized i was probably going into some sort of uh protein deficit and whilst the omad was something that i could do uh, from a psychological perspective the body was trained for it i realized i probably wasn't eating enough protein that prompted a, uh, another delve into what the appropriate protein intake for a person should be, and, and, and the literature's sort of uh, overrun with many, many opinions on that. But um, uh, what I've now naturally gravitated towards and what I, what I feel optimal on is the 16-8 approach, and this is the approach that I tend to offer to most of my younger patients with our older patients, we just find that this, um, uh, the shorter the eating window, the less time frame that they've got to get enough nutrients in because the issue with our older patients is, is in fact, they just don't eat enough. Uh, that's kind of their problem. And what they're eating is just very nutrient-poor and, and energy-dense. So with, with our elderly patients, we recommend that, 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 that they don't fast You know, to tr- try and ward off osteoporosis osteopenia and sarcopenia um so th- those that's a little bit on time frames of eating but but uh the content of what i eat now i think it's um the longer i've done it the the, the more i've just gravitated towards just meat fish eggs basically I, I mean i'm on a zero fiber diet um i will occasionally have fruits i'm, I'm not militant in the sense that uh, you know I've posted on this before that, you know, diets really become the new religion where people are just militant about these, these beliefs. Um, I kind of just really am quite intuitive with my body. Um, I'm I'm probably consuming, there'll be days where I'll just consume nothing but animal or fish based protein. But if the, if the kids are having some cherries and, you know, cherries are probably my weakness, um, you know, I'll, I'll, i'll have some of that it's not that that i won't um and if i'm out with 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 some friends or whatever it is as, as it was the case last night i i'll enjoy a normal meal um but generally i i don't know if it's the same with you guys but you generally pay the price for it the next day you, you just don't <laughs> you just don't feel as as on top of your game from a from a mental uh, standpoint and and certainly uh, you notice the, notice these subtle symptoms of abdominal bloating maybe perhaps increased um gas production because the, the system's just not used to it anymore um yeah so the i would say most of my diet is is primarily meat and fish now um with a lot of lot of eggs obviously eggs are a great source of just being able to fill in the uh, protein requirement for the day yeah mm-hmm. now With regards to our patients, it's kind of very difficult to push that type of diet on someone, say, the the people that I deal with primarily tend to be elderly, um, you know, in their 60s and 70s. And it's very difficult to push that idea onto them immediately. Um, So we have to kind of ease them into it. So the way we get them into it initially is just to cut out the fermentable carbohydrates. You know, let's look at working out the breads and the pastas and the cereals out of your diet. Uh, We will then follow it by, you know, working on the fruits and going for the lower sugar fruits, then the fermentable uh, foods such as garlics and onions, Um, and we just slowly work through it with them. Um, Very few of our patients will end up on a diet that is purely all meat. Um, It just doesn't work for most of them. Um... However, we find that the lower the carbohydrate content in their diet, the better they feel and the better the clinical outcomes in terms of being able to reverse things like diabetes, uh, fatty liver, etc. cetera. Mm-hmm. Okay, Does that so- answer your question, Alicia?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that uh, yeah. leads well into our next question. Mm. Yeah, it
3: was, I guess it was a little bit answered. Answer. The next question was what are the main challenges patients trying to get them to eat this way so you kind of touched a little
1: bit on that yeah yeah Uh, look I mean I can tell you just from a purely from a psychological perspective say say you get someone who's in their 30s 40s I mean I mentioned the older patients but just anyone in general we've kind of all of us have been indoctrinated with this idea of breakfast is important cereals are important fruits are important vegetables are important that's been part of Part of their their lives for forever, and and here they are seeing me because they're not feeling feeling completely appropriate from a gut perspective, and I see them for thirty minutes. That's a standard consultation to uproot their entire nutritional indoctrination within a thirty-minute period. It's it's really confronting. It's confronting for people, um, and and a lot of them struggle with it, and um, uh, it's that's been a challenge. However, uh, what I try and do, I've got some really nice graphics that I work with. These are the graphics that I generally will put up on social media, on Instagram and stuff like that. And I just put that in front of them and I just systematically work them through it, work them through it. And, and most people click on, um, you know, that maybe perhaps there is, is, is some science behind this. And the challenge I give them, a lot of them require endoscopies and colonoscopies and so forth because we obviously have to exclude cancers and other malignant causes inflammatory and malignant causes so the challenge i said to them is well you're going to have to wait two to three weeks for your procedures anyway why don't you try this for two to three weeks there is nothing that's going to happen within that two to three week period and what i what i love is prior to the endoscopies um as they're as they're coming into the room i said i asked them how have they been and within two week period 90 percent of them if they're able to give it a go have almost complete resolution of their gut symptoms you know which is which is amazing you know and some will tell you that their sugars are starting to to come down and they feel better they've lost weight some people can lose up to you know eight to nine kilos a lot of that is water though when you initially commence a low carbohydrate diet but people can lose weight Pretty rapidly, um, and that's eye-opening for a lot of people. And then they come out of that going, "Well, maybe this this mad doctor is onto something." At which point, we transition them onto a dietitian, someone who's accredited to give that advice and who can do it a lot better than um, a lot better than I can. I can introduce them to the concept, but then I've got some brilliant professionals like. Um, a lady by the name of Jessica Churton that I work with, who um, who's phenomenal at that. And she's in fact a low carbohydrate uh, PhD. One of her one of the reviews, systematic reviews that she's published, is exactly on this topic of applicational low carb diets and diabetics. Mm.
0: Yeah, we were all just sort of uh, hanging out last weekend, and so kind of what you were talking about, like uprooting someone's you know dietary paradigm that they've had their whole life like we struggle with that with some of our family members right so we we almost feel like that movie in the matrix where like you get unplugged from the matrix and you kind of realize what the reality is of you know the the food environment we're living in and you know what what the truth is and like what's going to actually keep us well and and protect us from all these diseases but then when you try to tell some family members the truth it's almost like you know or friends even their their eyes kind of glaze over and you know even if they know the truth they want to be plugged back in they want to kind of go back to that life of just eating ice cream and cake and all sorts of things with abandoned eating cereal and not really minding what they eat thinking there's no consequences so uh, totally get that so you you mentioned earlier about fiber and i thought you know what you're the authority you're going to be the authority on fiber you're you're a gastroenterologist and a lot of people when they hear about uh, you know a completely meat-based diet or meat or carnivore-ish diet where there's some other things, like you're talking about cherries and some fruits and vegetables involved. Their main concern is, well, like, don't you need fiber? Like, don't you need it to poop? Isn't it bad for you not to have fiber? Isn't, you know, what about colon cancer? I mean, um, you know, maybe, maybe you could comment a little bit about fiber and clear up some of that, uh, some of the misconceptions around it.
1: Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, no problems. Uh, look, it's not that fiber is problematic per se, fiber can be utilized by the colon to produce these short chain fatty acids, which which I think um, I've, I've, I've spoken to uh, prior in, in some of these posts that I've done. It, 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 fiber is utilized by the colon to generate these volatile ketones, um, which your colonocytes, the actual surface or the internal lining of your colon, they love these type of fuels and they utilize it. But the problem with that is it is just so inefficient and the production of the butyrate, which is produced, uh, the butyrate is the ketone, is actually a very low level. And that's with a really optimized microbiome. Uh, someone who can really, you know, produce a lot of, lot of ketones from that. There's someone who's eating a really diverse uh, diet like a hunter-gatherer, for instance. They, they've got an optimal microbiome on top of that, you'd have to have about 50 grams of fiber to generate um, about 50 grams of butyrate uh, per day. The argument that, that a lot of people have made is, well, these ketones can be produced locally in the colon through fermentation. However, they can also be produced uh, systemically as we know those in the low-carb world. That we can measure ketones within our serum through simply fasting or eating a diet that is extremely low carbohydrate. So someone who's fat adapted can produce a cousin of butyrate, which is beta hydroxybutyrate, um, which we produce with fat adapted tissue at many multiples above what we can do through fermentation. So we can nourish these colonocytes systemically. So that's the benefit of fiber really fiber doesn't really aid with constipation. There's numerous trials, especially in children. In fact, there are systematic reviews that state if a kid is constipated, remove the fiber, Um, Mm -hmm. which is interesting, isn't it? Okay. So when we get someone with ulcerative colitis coming with a flare, which is an inflammatory bowel disease where the large intestines inflamed, we say, first thing we do, we've done this for years with that and without automatically Uh, sort of having a science behind it, we've said low residue diet get them off their fiber because we know intrinsically that it is hard for the large intestine especially when inflamed to process all that all that stuff so fiber and constipation well that's that's it's a really it's a that field is um, extremely poor or scant in data but definitely in children there is data showing that excess fiber can constipate them, can paradoxically constipate them. Clinically, from, from my experience, you see patients that have been suffering constipation lifelong and, um, and a lot of them have trialed many things and, and fiber in those individuals can occasionally constipate them even more, which is quite interesting and it makes sense because it's just such a bulky thing having to move it, move it through a colon that's already not optimal is, is not easy. So there is a couple of trials in adults. In fact, there was a randomized control trial, um, which has shown that a zero fiber diet can actually help resolve constipation. This was a group of about 20 people who were studied and I think it was some sort of Singaporean journal, I can't remember the name, but um, it was a randomized control trial. So certainly there is data there showing that fiber may not be all that it's uh, purported to be. The, the issue is, as you know, most of these sort of things are compared to a standard Western diet. So a diet that is high in fiber compared to a standard Western diet is always going to be better. It's always going to yeah. to, to do far better. So therein lies a the problem. So it's pushed on everyone as, well, it's the ideal way to do it. But fiber is a very inefficient method of us utilizing uh, or obtaining a fuel that we can get through other means. Fasting, for instance, will we'll do the same thing yeah that makes sense. With, with With regards to answer your question on red meat, um sorry on um, on fibre and cancer, again, it's the same thing. if you're If you're consuming a diet rich in fibre, which means that you're not consuming the standard Western diet, means that you're already showing signs that you've got you know healthier behaviour. so you're probably more likely not to smoke, you're probably more likely to keep an ideal body weight and not over consume energy. Um, and, and these sort of factors come into play. I think, I think the biggest factor, uh, with, with cancer is probably obesity. In in my mind, I think that is the biggest factor and, um, a high fiber diet would certainly offset the risk of obesity because they're not eating a standard Western diet.
0: Yeah, I've, I actually, I've, I've seen that obesity is associated, not necessarily, you can't prove causation, but it's associated with pretty much every single cancer other than I think testicular cancer or something crazy like that. It's almost all. So, you know, they say it's a disease of chronic inflammation, your visceral fat produces, you know, cytokines and, you know, inflammatory promoters in the body. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, I guess on the note of, uh, we're talking about fiber constipation, um, diverticulosis comes up a lot. So for, for some of our viewers may not know what diverticulosis is, they're basically outpouchings of uh, the lining of your colon often happens towards the end of your colon. And uh, there's a couple theories that, I mean, and Prang, you can correct me if I get this wrong, but a couple theories are that, you know, there's just weakening in the wall from constipation, from from pressure, and you get these outpouchings forming, or it could be from chronic inflammation causes weakening, and then these outpouchings. And the problem is not so much the diverticulosis itself, but sometimes, Food particles, like fecal particles, bacteria get stuck in there and they kind of um, perforate the wall. It's like a micro perforation of the wall, cause inflammation, it causes people pain. They can develop lots of crazy complications like abscesses. They can get connections from their intestines to their bladder and other parts of the bowel. So it can be kind of a messy thing. So, um, have you, do you have any? Insight on the effects of fiber or these kinds of diets that you're promoting on diverticulosis? um, Does it prevent further cases of instances of diverticulitis, or do you ever see it heal up? Like, do the outpouchings ever go away on this kind of diet? I'm really curious to hear about
1: that. Yeah, great questions, great questions, Richard. The the interesting thing is. Perhaps ninety percent of colonoscopies that I do over um, in in people aged over the age of forty, will they, these people will have diverticulosis. It's just so prevalent now. Um, I've actually seen a climb. Even in my, you know, thirteen year, fourteen year history of, of, of um, practicing gastroenterology. Certainly, in the last ten years as a as a specialist, I have noticed a trajectory up um where there is just more and more cases of diverticulosis in younger and younger patients so the way i look at diverticulosis i think you describe it well as outpouchings in the colon it's essentially aging of these collagen fibers within the within the large intestine and certainly there are some genetic components you know some people are more predisposed to it than others but it is just so prevalent now that there is clearly something going on and the fact that it's happening in 20 and 30 year olds Um, which we do see as well it means that there is definitely something going on with our lifestyles um we talk a lot about muscle uh vegeta in in this in this low carb world we talk about the importance of muscle and it's important to remember the colonic tissue is muscle um the way i'd love to see someone do a review article or a some form of research on it but the way i view diverticular disease i think it's actually energy starvation of the colonicides um and that is why it tends to be commoner in the left side more common on the left side compared to the right because remember the right side of the colon the cecum is where a lot of this fiber is fermented that is where a lot of these ketones are being liberated so just far more ketone concentration in the right colon versus the left so I think, I think this is essentially a form of energy starvation. I think these, these colonocytes are being starved of, of fat um, or ketones. And, um, you know, because people are on extremely low fiber diets nowadays, they're not getting the local production. Additionally, people are on high carbohydrate diets. They're not getting systemic production. So we, we've got an issue there in, in, with regards to um, to the how we're nourishing our colonocytes, the cells lining our colon. Um, this is why I think exercise is so beneficial for, for your gut because you're liberating through 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 high intensity exercise or resistance training or whatever, uh, you're liberating ketones, just break down a fat. Um, and, and I think this is why. Um, We're suffering an issue now with diverticulosis. There's no, we're not using fat as a fuel. We're utilizing sugar as a fuel. Um, So I think it's an energy issue compounded by genetic factors as well, of course.
0: Okay. And then when you implement the dietary changes that you recommend to your patients, what happens after that?
1: Hard to, hard to get that back, you know, hard to, hard to these sort of tissues, um, the diaphragm, the, the colonocytes, the esophageal tissues, these are all tissues, as, as you know, which are not really under voluntary control. So it's not a type of muscle that you can take to the gym and say, well, I'm gonna target this and hypertrophy this and strengthen this. It just doesn't work this way. It tends to be cumulative damage. And uh, you can arrest the damage, perhaps, with some lifestyle changes. In fact, I'm certain you can arrest the damages. But these sort of tissues that are under autonomic uh, control, under the control of the, the 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 nervous system, which is just automatic, which is what we term the autonomic um, uh, neural centers, I, I think it's impossible to reverse those changes um, once they're once they're there.
0: Okay. Um, and do you see, I mean, patients that get recurrent diverticulitis, do their episodes decrease in frequency or stop? Uh, do you see any of that happen or is it hard to stop?
1: Uh, no, no. With a low carbohydrate diet, absolutely. Absolutely. So fiber um, is not an issue. Like if they want to consume fiber and ever say, well, stop. You can, we always recommend that they go for uh, soluble fiber. Something like Metamucil tends to ferment quite nicely. It gives them good bulk and it's not too stressful. Um, the, the flip side to that is insoluble fiber tends to be really poorly absorbed and can give them a lot more gut symptoms, but things like metamucil or psyllium husk. Um, I don't know if you guys get that in Canada, but we, yeah. we tend to recommend that if, uh, if, if they win. And what we tend to tell people is try not to utilize your colon as much. So minimize your, your intake of, um, foods such as breads and, Pastas and excessive vegetables try and go more protein-based because you can imagine from Take an individual who's on a say a primarily carnivorous diet They're actually not utilizing their colon very much for their digestion. It primarily is small bowel based absorption Um, Whereas the modern method of digestion is just we're, we're eating so much in the way of fermentable carbohydrates that it has to end up in the colon. The colon just gets overworked. Um, in addition to that, as I've said before, it's energy starved. It's just such a such a paradox, isn't it, that we're utilizing the colon more but providing it with less energy. Um, and you can see why it struggles and why a lot of people have digestive issues in this modern era. It keeps, keeps us guys in a job, but um, it's, kind of, it's kind of quite sad to see.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it's interesting you said that. I've seen some diagrams online, and actually in the book *The Carnivore Code*, comparative anatomy of our the relative length of our small bowel, our small intestines versus our large intestines. I think that you know ruminant animals tend to have more colon real estate because they're doing a lot of fermenting. They're chewing vegetable matter all day, grasses and stuff like that. They have more of a capacity to ferment, extract nutrients from it. Whereas our GI tracts are more small bowel heavy, we've got, you know, many, many feet of coiled small bowel, but our our colon is relatively short and it's more comparable to that of a wolf. So it's interesting that you say that we're kind of eating so much plant matter that we're overwhelming our colons, which are no longer adapted to that kind of a diet, from what I understand.
1: 100%, 100% 100%, 100% vegetarian. I mean, you know, I've heard a lot of people compare our digestive tract with wolves and lions and so forth. But the, but the way I look at it, it, it's quite elegant to look at it this way is that we undoubtedly ar- arise from a from a creature that is a herbivore, primarily a fruit-based eater. Um, you know, in the in the forests, the dense forests, the lush rainforests of Africa four million years ago, but as those gave way into savannas, we, we were forced down from these trees. Now that is what started our dietary journey. So've this is what makes us remarkable uh, in the animal kingdom is we, we are herbivores without a doubt. Four million years ago we were. So we've got a lot of these features that makes us adaptable. So yes, our colons have shrunk, but we could still do fiber. We can still do plant material. Yes, we're herbivores, but we enhanced our small intestine. Uh, significantly which meant that we could just do do heaps of quality foods which are nutrient dense like fats and proteins we're just super adaptable um and that's what makes us extremely remarkable um and this is why i i sort of back away from from saying that uh we should be militant about our diet because i i think we're just really adaptable sort of creatures but the way it's being done in the current era where 400 grams of carbohydrate enter our system every day, well, that, that it sort of overwhelms the capacity of our gut to be able to absorb like that. So it's almost like, I feel like it's almost like we're reverting back to that creature in the tree 4 million years ago, um, except with refined sugars, um, which, which is problematic. I think we do best on a diet, which is utilizing the small bowel more quality protein, quality fat, some starches.
0: Okay. Yeah, that makes uh, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, so last question for me on this sort of thread, and then I'll let the other guys go. But um, we, we talked about this earlier, the SCD diet, the specific carbohydrate diet, which was a diet used at the Seattle Children's Hospital to treat uh, infl- inflammatory bowel disease like Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis. So I guess I'm curious, in your patients that have these diseases, which I, from what I understand, have an autoimmune basis, like what changes do you notice before and after dietary intervention and, you know, in terms of like their symptoms, blood work, other labs, uh, endoscopy, if any, like you see ulcerations get better in their mucosa and any changes in the gut microbiome, like I'm not sure if you measure that or track that, but we're, I'd be curious to hear what happens with these patients um, with dietary intervention
1: sure great question the specific carbohydrate diet which as you said was developed in um seattle it's really quite simple um rather than mystify the diet i'll demystify it and that demystification is basically based on the fact that that they are telling people not to eat crap so they basically withdraw bread they withdraw refined sugars and they basically make these carbohydrates green vegetables fruits Very simple. Really is quite simple. In addition to that, you can have plenty of fish, plenty of eggs, plenty of meat, and they remove some of the more inflammatory vegetables like, you know, the nightshades, um, like the potatoes, the eggplants and stuff like that, which is all sensible stuff. And it's been shown to be remarkable in terms of its, um, its, its response, especially in children. Uh, in terms of maybe not reversing disease, but certainly reducing the requirement for um, immunosuppressive therapy. And in addition, it's definitely helped with, um, with symptoms. And they can track inflammation through endoscopic findings, as well as stool testing, which is a test known as faecal cow protect. And you can tell that people are becoming less inflammatory with that method. Um, So that is the basis of the specific carbohydrate diet. And even it is something that, you know, even your standard gastroenterologists, they're starting to acknowledge as maybe there is something there because classically in the past, it's always just been immunosuppressive therapy. Um, Now with what we're doing in in our center, um, we've got to be careful because inflammatory bowel disease has got such a defined treatment paradigm. Right, that that if I start applying dietary principles to everyone, well, you know, I've got to be careful as a practitioner to practice within the guidelines. So there's been, you know, I've been cautious about it. But there's about four of my clients that have said, look, I'd I'd love to trial diet before we trial medications, and I work in conjunction with a chap by the name of Ramesh Parames. So these are. You know, he's a, he's a PhD uh, gastroenterologist who did a lot of research on fecal-based transplantation and so forth. And, you know, we, we've had a discussion and we said, look, we'll try this. We'll give these people three to six months on these type of diets. And it's quite remarkable. I'm seeing some remarkable findings where um, where their disease is essentially resolving. But the diet that we're using is not a specific carbohydrate diet. We're using something called an autoimmune protocol in conjunction with our dietitians, which is primarily... Um, meat, fish and eggs uh, with salt, avoiding all the fancy things, avoiding the chilies, avoiding vegetables. And then eventually once these people start seeing resolution, we'll add back in some fruits, we'll add back in some green vegetables. But the key principles behind all of this is the grain. The grains we think are hugely problematic and anything derived from grains. And it's really getting them off that. I think that makes a difference. The Initial period of three to six months of the heavy protein diet, I think allows for the healing to occur, the intestinal permeability, the microbiome to reset, and then slowly adding back less immunogenic foods is the trick. And it needs to be done carefully with a, with a good dietitian. And certainly the endoscopic findings, what I see on colonoscopies pre-imposed is that there is uh, definitely a resolution.
0: Ah, uh, that's super interesting. I'm glad to hear that, that you're actually seeing this objectively in real life happen with your patients. So that's
1: awesome. 100%, 100%. Just to give you an example, I had a chap yesterday, 40-year-old chap. He um, got put on Biologics, Betaluzumab, Imuran, prednisone, the whole lot. He's a relatively fit guy. Um, and this is without my intervention. Three years ago, he decided that he wasn't going to do that. He um, cut down carbs, went on an intermittent fasting um, Vin you say you could speak and he cut down to an OMAD type diet, cut down his weight. Um his, his I, I did his colonoscopy yesterday. Um he's got completely resolved colitis, um, or a very subtle colitis in the right colon. He's no longer on biologics, has been unmedicated for the last three years. Um so it's amazing. I mean, people if they've got the motivation can pull it off with lifestyle. There's no doubt about that.
0: No doubt. Yeah, that's really awesome. Yeah, and I mean it's it avoids complications from their medication and then people don't realize this, but like ulcerative colitis and Crohn's, I mean, there are some terrible complications that can happen. I mean, bowel obstructions, specialization between loops of bowel, you get your colon cut out, potentially, and have to have a stoma with ulcerative colitis. Like, it's it's pretty serious stuff, but I don't know if people always see that. But, you know, if I ever come across someone who's got something like this, you know, my personal wish for them would be to have something like that happen to them, like have, have them go on a diet and have it resolved without having to go through... Medical treatment or surgical treatment, because I, I think everyone, for everyone, that would be ideal if they knew what the long-term consequences were to go think go down the sort of conventional route. You know,
1: absolutely, I, I absolutely agree with that. It's um it's quite interesting. I, I won't harp on this point too much longer, but just your general everyday person in the West, you can do something called a high sensitivity CRP test or a CRP even. And what we're seeing more and more in younger, younger patients, this CRP is just up for no reason. And it's low levels, you know, five, six, seven. And you say, Well, what's causing this? What what has your general practitioner or family physician looked into it? Yeah, they saw it, but I have no symptoms, so it's okay. So you can see that just I think as a species, we we are just inflamed, chronically inflamed. It's just some people show this end organ damage, whether that's manifested through joint pain in rheumatoid or brain damage in MS or colitis in in my field. But there is low-level inflammation occurring in everyone. And what is interesting is on a low-carbohydrate diet, that CRP drops. Um, It's super dramatic, and that is almost universally in, in pretty much anyone. Uh, that CRP drops significantly to a point where it should be undetectable uh, under 0.5. That's your high sensitivity CRP parameter here. So, uh, and and people will tell you, they'll come back. Uh, uh, Pran, you put me on a low carb diet for my bloating and my, my high sugars. What I've entered what I've noted is interestingly, is I've dropped weight, my psoriasis as a result and things like that, which is really quite, quite amazing, sort of findings but this is all anecdote till we can put sit down and do this in in a in a way which is randomized controlled um in in a large-scale trial uh, you know we just won't gain traction in the medical industry which is which is sad but certainly from an anecdotal perspective we're seeing it um anything that betters lifestyle is a good way to practice so i've got no fear in practicing this way but we're seeing some good results that's awesome
4: that's awesome
2: so I, I guess I can just go into my next question. I know we touched on this a little bit, but I was wondering if you could just do a little bit of a deeper dive on what sort of symptom improvements do you see in your patients and what's the feedback that you get from them?
1: Sure. Yeah, no problems. The, 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 the things that, okay, so the thing that I deal with a lot is uh, reflux. Uh, we get a lot of abdominal bloating, which can be problematic for people. Um, and quite, quite painful for some. Um, and we, of course, get irritable bowel, which is a constellation of symptoms, really constipation, diarrhea, alternating between between the lot, a lot of that is driven by diet. Um, so I think probably 70% of a gastroenterologist practice is made up of irritable bowel presentations, of which 95% of it's related to diet. Um, the first thing I tell people is a lot of these gut symptoms um, are not due to structural pathology they are due to our diet and so what we tend to do is we modify the carbohydrate content we talk about the fermentable carbohydrates like we've spoken about the ones that liberate the methane and hydrogen and nitrogen all these volatile gases that stretch people out make them feel pretty unwell so by reducing these these aspects of um of of their diet people get resolution of abdominal bloating very very quickly i mean this can happen a few days into a low carbohydrate diet where they are feeling significantly better from that perspective Um, and certainly bowel functions the same It, it it can rapidly improve with regards to gastroesophageal reflux that's a little bit trickier um there needs to be some weight loss significant weight loss actually before that'll that'll resolve for most, Uh, that's a slower process. So we use proton pump inhibitors, sometimes for symptomatic control, to try and get people through it. But with with weight loss, as the visceral, the intra-abdominal fat moves out of the system, there's less pressure on the stomach. And we find that that it's probably not the only mechanism behind why overweight people get reflux, but um, that tends to resolve, but a little bit um, less rapidly.
3: It's so interesting to hear you say that because something that I encounter almost every time I visit my dad, and that you guys have probably have complained to you about this quite a few times, but my grandmother, I think she's around 74 years old, she's literally had like this stomach kind of pain, like a burning sensation, almost every day for the last like 15, 15 years of her life. And um, she's currently in Canada, and I've been telling her to do a food diary, write down what you're eating, you know, keep note of it. And, um, her, you can kind of tell where her mind mindset is at. Her answer is it, it can't be what I'm eating. I've been eating this way for so many years. Yeah. And yeah. like last time I told her, I was like, grandma, your glass is full, honey. Like <laughs> it, your body can no longer handle what it was able to handle before. I mean, I'm no doctor obviously. So I may be wrong, but I, i can see the the connection between what she eats and how she feels and um we got her these pills and her stomach pain is gone now she doesn't feel it anymore but i wonder is that just like a band-aid
1: or yeah i don't think it's really
3: resolved the issue she she eats um about a loaf of bread a day with my father
0: yeah
1: yeah, sorry,
3: yeah, sorry, yeah. Dad, if you're watching
1: this. <laughs> <laughs> Look, watch this but... but see, see, Petra, I mean it's a great point, but, but can you imagine what I face as a gastroenterologist day out? This is your classic patient and and, and they tell me this and I say, Well, this is how you gotta change it. And but I'm seventy four and I've done this all my life and you know it's it really is quite Mentally um, over the last few years, I've been drained by it all to be quite to be quite honest And this is why I'm so pleased to be working with this team of of brilliant dietitians They've really taken a lot of load off of uh, off me um, Because it's exactly that it's that well. I've been doing it. It's a fight mm-hmm. straight away And as Vajid said, I-, I love this movie because I think it encompasses brilliant. It's the matrix It's mm-hmm. you're kind of plugged in and they don't want to be unplugged I think it's a great analogy that he used um, Here's something really interesting. As a a young person, the pH of your stomach, the lower the pH, of course, the more acidic something is. The pH of a human stomach is about 1 to 1.5. Extremely acidic, extremely acidic. Now, the older the person gets, the less acidic the stomach becomes. This is why they become less efficient at breaking down protein and absorbing protein. Um, So say your grandmother, for instance, her pH is probably sitting around four, four and a half. Yet paradoxically, they get these symptoms of gut pain, which is attributed to acid, and they get acid blocked with proton pump inhibitors, which can make their stomach less acidic still. So can you see how it's just a Band-Aid? Solution, yeah. uh, because you really need the stomach to be acidic to be able to absorb well. So if your stomach is a pH of six, for instance, five or six, you're really not going to absorb protein very well. Yeah. Um, and 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 so it just becomes this vicious cycle. Whilst it might uh, reduce her symptoms, um, the issue doesn't resolve. The symptoms a lot of the time are brought about by diet. It, you know, if you're eating. Uh, a lot of bread, ex- you know, huge amounts of bread, your colon's got to ferment that. There's the, you know, there is the, not just that, there is the damage from the wheat germ gluten, and the gluten, the glide, and the gluten-based damage in addition to all the fermentation in the colon. It, it really is stressful for the gut. And what's occurring downstream in the gut has effects upstream in the stomach. They're all connected, you know, from mouth to anal canal. It's just really one six-meter-long tube and they all communicate with each other. So... It is super frustrating um, to to sort of work with that, but we've got to be patient, I think, and and one step at a time. I think just the key thing is just adding in protein to offset what's being eaten. Say if it's a lot of bread, for instance, well, could you increase your protein a little bit more and reduce the bread a little bit more? And I think you've just got to work with it gradually with these sort of people and just be patient with them.
3: For sure. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, I can. I. I can relate to that frustration a little bit. It's kind of like, I, I've ta- I was actually just talking today about, to a friend who wants to make some dietary changes, but she's like, I don't want to do this, this, or this. I like eating this, this, and this. And it's kind of like, it's one. Of, it's, it's that saying, saying that Einstein said, I think. It's like, if you keep trying to do the same thing, but expecting different results, it's sort of the definition of insanity, right? Like, it's just yes. kind of like, well, this is what yeah. got you into this situation, this trouble. You're going to have to do something different. So... Yeah, yeah, and but I agree like you definitely have to kind of meet people where they are and be patient with them Because coming down on them like a hammer and being like you got to change everything, you know It <laughs> doesn't usually go over too well, right? They usually kind of react, you know, kind of fight or flight at that point They either tear a strip off you or, or just ignore you after that point if you try to take a really strong-handed approach
1: Absolutely, absolutely
0: um, okay, so I guess we've talked about, you know, the, the GI tract, like the, the intestines, the colon, we talked about the stomach, the esophagus a bit, a couple other organs that are critical for the GI tract are the liver and pancreas. And one thing that I see very, very commonly these days on imaging uh, is fatty liver, fatty pancreas, some people refer to it as like ectopic fat deposition. So maybe could you elaborate on what that is for our viewers who maybe don't have a medical background, like what it is, what do you think causes it? what are the long-term implications and, and how do you see that being resolved in patients?
1: Not a problem, uh, Vegeta. I, I think the best analogy to use is, is well, there's two aspects to it, but the first one to use the, the common type of fatty liver and fatty pancreas is you've got an individual consuming a lot of carbohydrates every day for the longest time. The body is constantly stimulating its insulin. Um, as the insulin rises, the me- mechanism of insulin is, is, well, it- it's fat storage. We store fat viscerally, um, within organs, within our muscle, a muscle becomes marbled in response to high marbled, like a, like a Wagyu steak, basically in response to high, high insulin. Eventually we just run out of places to store it. And we store it around the heart in the face and un- everywhere. Um, and it's got to store in places, and and fatty liver and fatty pancreas is basically that. It's just storage, more storage, just the body struggling and panicking and trying to find a place to store all this excess energy that we're stimulating the insulin with. Um, The liver tends to become fatty quite quickly because this is the primary site of insulin resistance, in addition to these high fructose-based diets, which is either coming through excessive fruits, lots of um, fruit juices, sodas, high fructose corn syrup, sucrose, even sucrose as I've made mention to in the past in my post is primarily made up of fructose. It's 50% fructose. So all this stuff converts to fat and it creates, um, creates an issue uh, with insulin resistance. So it's all just storage. Virginia. That's probably the easiest way to look at it, I think, body just trying to pack it all away.
0: Okay. And then like long-term, what are the implications of that? Is there anything specific to those organs or just more in general health, like metabolic syndrome, obesity, and all the sort of related diseases?
1: Um, you touched on in the past, I think fat, fat is inflammatory. It um, releases all sorts of inflammatory cytokines. We know that fatty liver can cause cirrhosis. I, I've seen it many, many times. Uh, yep. I've seen people die from cirrhosis related to fatty liver. Um, in fact, it's predicted that in the upcoming decades, alcohol will move down as a cause of cirrhosis, viral hepatitis will move down as a cause of cirrhosis, as we start getting more effective treatments for viral hepatitis. The number one cause of cirrhosis, which is basically end stage sort of liver damage, um, there's various stages of cirrhosis, cirrhosis, of course, but the major cause of cirrhosis, which is scarring of the liver will become fatty liver. Um, which is quite a scary thought uh, that a lifestyle based condition will become our biggest cause of liver failure. Um, So, so yes, there are some very sinister uh, issues that can come about with, with uh, fatty deposition in the liver with regards to what goes on in the pancreas. It's quite interesting that if your pancreas, which is this beautiful organ, that that, secretes all this insulin for us in, in response to this high carbohydrate diet. It keeps doing that for many years. Yeah, the pancreas works like like anything to, to keep secreting all this insulin. But as you're storing more and more fat into it, over time, even the pancreas has got to fail. So you'll reach this point in certain type 2 diabetics, uh, Vajid, where you can't actually reverse them with lifestyle anymore because they've got a combination of uh, insulin resistance but at the same time, they've got a component of insulin failure too. Um, and that's a very late stage of type 2 diabetes, you know, uh, which is quite sad. And But there is some evidence saying that, like, by doing bariatric surgery, for instance, some of this insulin-based function comes back to the pancreas. Um, or by doing a extremely low-carbohydrate diet and becoming insulin-sensitive, your pancreas can recover. But a lot of times, there's a lot of scarring and a lot of damage that is done. So it's best to implement these diets early. You know mm-hmm. what I mean, and I think this is this is the key thing about targeting our, our millennials and 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 even our thirty and forty year olds. It's 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 really being able to prevent that damage from occurring in the first place. Because, like from experience, at sixty or seventy, there's a lot of damage sustained.
0: For sure. And that that um, fatty liver related cirrhosis, that's Nash cirrhosis that you're referring to, right? I think it's non-alcoholic steatohepatitis.
1: Right? Correct. Yeah. 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 I I'd, I'd like to think of it as uh, as the fructose cirrhosis, basically, um, because I mean fructose is treated almost identically by the body as alcohol is. In fact, I've termed them metabolic cousins, fructose and alcohol, ethanol are metabolic cousins. They're processed the same way. And yep. radiologically, you'll see the fatty liver in, in people that don't drink. It'll look identical to the fatty liver in those uh, that, that drink. It's because they're processed the same way.
0: Yep, yep, definitely. I mean, anecdotally, I've definitely noticed I've seen many more many more cases of fatty liver, uh, NASH cirrhosis lately than I have, sort of alcoholic cirrhosis. I mean, definitely more than in the past. Maybe it's about even, and what's, what's remarkable to me is sometimes the liver is so fatty. So the liver is like, you know, generally on imaging, it's the same density as other soft tissues, like your muscle. But then when there's so much fat being stored in it, it becomes the the density of liquid, which is crazy. Like to me, like that, it's like water density. That's how much fat is being stored in. It, it just, it swells up. It looks, I mean, just unwell. Like it kind of hurts me to look at livers like that. It just looks inflamed, you know? So Mm. Yeah, so, and I assume, I mean, to get all this better, like you said, lifestyle intervention, lower carbohydrate diet, whole foods diet, would reverse fatty liver and fatty pancreas, assuming they haven't reached the end stage of cirrhosis or being insulin dependent uh,
1: diabetics. Okay. Exactly. Perfect. Exactly.
0: Okay.
4: All right, perfect. Uh, I'll jump in here. Uh, Dr. Fran, first I want to let you know that the meters thoroughly enjoy your Instagram page. Um, Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's we, very nice to hear. We find many posts very relatable, um, especially the ones where I, I feel like your frustration manifests into the post. I think <laughs> those best are the best,
1: right? <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, I think Instagram has been a great outlet for me to just, just get out some of the frustration about my industry in particular, the healthcare industry, but uh, just, just, you know, just communicate with like-minded people in the space and have some friendly debates with people. I, I think it's been great for me personally from a from a mental health perspective just to be absolutely able to, to get it out there you know yeah
4: and that, and that's the beautiful thing right the whole duality of it all right not being afraid to show the other side i think instead of just uh, it you know creeping up on you so we do thoroughly absolutely. enjoy that but um for our viewers i know we talked a, lot, a little bit about grains and other foods that you you try to make people avoid but Very simple, Um, if you could say maybe the top three foods to avoid for uh, people to really improve their health and avoid these uh, diseases, what what would it be?
1: Okay, sure, top three foods to avoid. Okay, I would say, I'd put grains in the same category um, Mm -hmm. and and say, look, I would avoid wheat, I would would, uh, avoid barley, I would avoid rye, I would avoid rices. Um, I would avoid all grains. I, I don't think grains provide any benefit to the human body. Um, I really don't. So grains, I think, are out. I think certainly the second food type to avoid is anything that is a refined carbohydrate. It can be intimately t- tied in with, with grains, of course. But anything that is refined, I, I, I would say, has no place in for the human body, uh, these, is, these are these are our breads, our pastas. Uh, they're just high glycemic foods mm-hmm. with no benefit. And, and the third thing to avoid is um, for health. I think is is a high fructose corn syrup. Anything that is high in fructose. So even our sugar, our refined sugar, our white sugar is very rich in fructose. I think that should be avoided. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think I think. Um, all our donuts and cookies and all this sort of rubbish, anything that comes out of a packet should should be avoided. And finally, if I can throw in one more thing, the fourth thing Absolutely. I think that will be worthwhile avoiding is, is vegetable oils. I think if people can, can remove those, those four categories out of their system, I think they're doing well. Um, I think they're doing really well. And then it becomes a question of, well, we don't need to be super militant about the diet as in Mm -hmm. doesn't need to be veganism or completely carnivore type diets, then people can go, well, how do I work around this? So I've said it before, the diet that I think will provide the most adherence is an extremely high protein diet with low glycemic carbohydrates. You know, low glycemic carbohydrates for some people are, are fine. The paradox to all of that is: the older the person gets, the less they require the low glycemic carbohydrates. They're better off actually becoming more carnivorous, like your grandmother, for instance. Becca, <laughs> would 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 uh, you know she would she would benefit from the diet? But but most of us in our age group, um, there is no harm to consuming some carbohydrates, especially if you're if you're active, super active, because. The, the paradox to all of this is that you simply can't consume enough protein to provide your muscles with glycogen. If you're super active, if you're doing a lot of resistance training, uh, a lot of exercise, it is impossible to meet your protein targets. Um, be very expensive to do so for most as well.
4: Yeah. We, we weren't going to let you go until you said oils. I was waiting <coughs> for that one. Yeah. That was really <laughs> funny. We, we all just like had this big head nod. Like as
0: soon as you said yeah. that, we we're like, yeah, get yeah. rid of that stuff. Like, yeah. you know, <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, it, that that one's a no-brainer, isn't it? Almost, it's um, it 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 really yeah. is horrible stuff. And um, it's the the issue with it is is the linoleic acid and the omega sixes. But the, what people don't realise is, um, a lot of the grains are quite rich in that
4: mm-hmm. uh,
1: anyway. Um, and and they're they're all sort of intimately linked, really. We should be maximising our omega three. I think we do need a bit of omega six. Omega six helps keep it keeps our defence um you know a defense system of our body immune system uh nice and sharp but i just think there's a clear imbalance in omega-6 versus three additionally we can get omega-6 from animal foods you know yeah um seafoods and and meats um, are very rich in omega-6 without overdoing it
4: yeah and uh what's worrisome is like yeah we you know we we just named about three or four types of food but Hearing you answer them it 's almost like that 's the majority of everything i mean there 's vegetables and yep. everything like these grains it 's ninety nine percent of what I see uh, people checking out in the groceries right so it 's just funny to think that it's those are the main culprits, and yet it 's everywhere right it 's the majority uh-huh. of the things that are being consumed so
1: absolutely I, like one of the most frustrating things for me to do is actually go to the grocers because yeah. you sort of see these people <laughs> that are that are, that are really struggling with their health and, yeah. you know, you kind of almost want to pull them aside and, and give them that spiel. But uh, again, it's, it's that it's, it's too challenging for people and it's confrontational to be, to challenge that, that sort of uh, eating pattern because it's their ideology. It's their mm-hmm. nutritional ideology. Uh, but yeah, uh, you know, I think I posted on this yesterday, 70%, 70 to 75% of America's diet is exactly those four things that we mentioned. Yeah. Um, you know cereals grains vegetable oils transaturated fats it's a, it's a tragedy mm-hmm. where um, what, what we're seeing is kind of the the, the sort of decline of the, of the human species but you know the the sad thing is uh, on a on a negative note I just struggled to see how how humanity can reverse all of this because there needs to be some shifts in in agriculture that need to be quite dramatic and and and, um, and and occur soon to try and help with all of this. And this is where regenerative farming and, and things will come into mm-hmm. it, hopefully in the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's a lot that needs to change, lots. Yeah.
0: Unfortunately, there's
3: not a lot of profit in having people healthy and thinking for themselves. So that's a big barrier.
0: And, and on top of that, a oh, lot geez. of these sort of processed food practices are, are very, you know, profit Driven um, and maybe ethics get a bit sidelined because they don't maybe look into as much depth as maybe they could into the long-term implications of this kind of dietary habit. What actually happens to people with these uh, food ingredients and and you know what you mentioned about Americans too. Like there's a there was a paper recently that said that 88% of Americans are metabolically unhealthy. So like that's not just the ones you're seeing struggle at the grocery store. That's people who look. You know, from first impression, they look totally normal, totally fine, but 88%. And so that must mean that some people that look healthy on the surface are actually unhealthy on the inside and, and could have big implications for why they're not doing so well with COVID-19. Like, obviously, there's some social distancing, distancing mask issues in America, too. But it's definitely possible that the reason why they've, they've been doing so poorly is, is partially, at least because of poor metabolic health.
1: Oh, with with without a doubt. I mean, here in Australia, we've we've got you know issues here as well with metabolic health. But um, really, we we're not seeing the death rates that that America is seeing. I'm not sure what it's like in Canada, but um, America extremely metabolically unhealthy, and and. Um, I think COVID has definitely impacted them hard. Um, and to answer your question, yeah, absolutely. You could you could look super fit and still be extremely metabolically unhealthy. You just need to measure important parameters like homocysteine and high sensitivity CRP to, to, to know that. Um, and yeah, there, there's a lot more to metabolic health than just the aesthetics of it all, I think.
0: Very cool. Um... Alicia, did you want to do this next question? We kind of touched on it before.
2: Yeah, I, I was going to say, I feel like we've maybe touched on this a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. And just as how the conversation has been going, maybe your question, Vajra, would be uh, a good next
0: step. Sure. Okay, so this one has a bit of a preamble, but I guess it's it's a controversial topic. So, I mean, there's a lot of sort of, I think, my opinion, misguided and seemingly unsubstantiated fears regarding red meat and cancer these days, and red meat as a potential carcinogen, uh, based on sort of poor science and guidelines with limited basis. I've watched a few critiques of some of the World Health Organization guidelines, and when they actually go into what studies they use, you know, half of the studies they used showed maybe some relationship between red meat and cancer, the other half didn't, and even the paper itself the guidelines they published said it's it's probably a carcinogen but it's not they don't really have the basis to say um, you know that it is related to cancer for sure um, now that being said something in our environment likely diet related or at least partially diet related is wrong because cancer rates keep going up but like maybe 10 years ago when i was in radiology training uh, i think it was one in 3 ontarians like people in or, or in canada Um, one in three were going to get cancer in their lifetime. Now, recently, Cancer Care Ontario published stats that it's going to be 50%. So one in two people will now develop cancer um, over a lifetime. So I guess, you know, part of your job is to do endoscopy, specifically colonoscopy, where you may see polyps or frank cancers developing. Can you maybe provide some insight and, like, any evidence to support your thoughts regarding the role of red meat uh, in cancer development, if any? And then follow from that, like following from that, like what do you think, I mean, you kind of touched on the obesity thing, but if there's anything else you think that is causing um, cancer and like what we can do to prevent all this from happening, because 50% is a crazy stat, which means, you know, out of the, how many of us are here? Five, right? So two and a half of us are going to get cancer basically and if we all live in Ontario. Um, so maybe you could share your thoughts
4: on all that.
1: Go uh, Well, the... The interesting thing is the World Health Organization, the, all, those, all those sort of recommendations came from the analysis of about 800 studies, of which 20 showed a possible link, 800 epidemiological studies of which 20 showed a possible link. So that's 780 that didn't. So 90, I, I don't know the statistics there, but that's over, gosh, that's over 98% that show no link. So those world health recommendations really, um, they probably belong in a rubbish heap, um, is where I think, I think those they've really given some, they've done the world a disservice with those guidelines. Um, that's what I think of the world health, um, uh, recommendations. And I've written about this, I've blogged about this multiple times on even on my, on my website, there is an analysis with an in-depth analysis looking at the numbers of it all. So, um, that's, that's, what i think with regards to the the cancer risk i mean i get a lot of patients that come in to see me post colonoscopy and i say well look i've removed a polyp which is a precursor to a cancer because cancer doesn't appear overnight i think it's important for people to know that it goes through a sequence of events it often takes many years it can take many decades for colorectal cancer to develop often does um we don't know the exact time frame but we estimate anything from 10 to 20 years is what it takes for a polyp to become a cancer and they say well what causes polyps i say well the same thing that makes you grow makes them grow insulin and a steady state of glucose um being delivered to the system it is these are all potent growth factors to uh promote cancer growth so at the heart of our cancer epidemic um lies this concept of insulin resistance um insulin the more insulin there is circulating around a system the more igf1 you've got insulin like growth factor you've got and various other growth factors so uh, cancer is a growth and and we've just got ample growth factors just circulating through our system and um this is why it's all tied in with obesity because Well, hyperinsulinemia and obesity go hand in hand, same disease. But you don't necessarily need to be overweight to be hyperinsulinemic, as you know. Uh, You can have children that are hyperinsulinemic and, and, you know, with with their acne and with their irregular periods in females, with polycystic ovarian syndrome occurring in very fit, supposedly fit, young, healthy women. Um, This is all manifestations of hyperinsulinemia. Um, the important thing is when the insulin levels are low, um, generally the body goes into a mechanism of cleanup, which I don't think we're having. I think you've, you you, people might've heard of it, of the, of the concept of autophagy, but for that to be activated, insulin must be low. And, uh, if insulin stimulated all the time, how can we clean up the mess that, that, or the reactive oxidation damage that occurs to our DNA it can't happen. So we're spending less time in cleanup uh, because of this as well. So insulin is key factor to know why our malignancy rates, our cancer rates are going up so much. Um, it kind of like you just have to plot the cancer um, incidence on, on um, or cancer rates on the obesity rates to know that those two curves kind of marry up almost perfectly.
0: Yeah. And also the, the, uh Introduction of a lot of these processed foods that you said to avoid if you look in the last hundred years as soon as those start to go up That's when I mean again, it's correlation not causation, but it's kind of like what else in our environment has changed so drastically You know, it's it's definitely something we should be really heavily researching and looking into as the potential driver for all of this
1: Hundred percent, because I just can't think of anything else that's changed. genetically, our genetic code has remained relatively static. You'd think Um, we're smoking less. Do you know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. compared compared to the '30s and '40s and '50s, '70s, even like we're smoking far less. There is far less carcinogens um in our systems such as asbestos and 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 lead and all these things we're just so much smarter about all these things now but um, there's clearly something else going on and uh, one has to one has to sort of point the di- point the finger at, at food it has to be uh, environment
0: yeah and it's not a not an old uh, sorry it's not a new theory either I think there's this, something called the the Warburg effect by Otto Warburg this is I think in the first, half of uh, the 1900s, uh, there was this thought that maybe, you know, cancer has some kind of metabolic component and putting somebody on a low carbohydrate diet, I think, I forget exactly what the results were, but could slow down the development of the cancer. And I'm not sure if you're, you're familiar with um, paleomedicina or ICMNI yeah. in Hungary. Like I mean, they're yeah. they're one of their three pronged theory for chronic disease, including cancer, is excess carbohydrate load, and their diet that they propose, uh, which is PKD, is 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 a basically a zero carb diet. It's just a structured carnivore diet, which you yep. know ties in very well with what you're talking about here for preventing cancer and, and potentially stopping it in its tracks.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I think this is the key thing. I think putting carnivore diet aside, I think a diet that is extremely depleted in carbohydrate where you're forcing your body to make its own sugar through ingestion of protein is an ideal diet. It's kind of a very historical ancestral diet. Um, There is no requirement for carbohydrate. It is a completely non-essential macronutrient because our body can make it. Yet look at how we consume it, it makes makes up the uh, bulk of, of of our food. Um, where it needs to be tweaked slightly, perhaps as for athletes, especially high level athletes, they might require some carbohydrate loading, but for most of us, we could, we could, we could, we could thrive on a diet that is just purely protein based. Um, and generally proteins being proteins will bring along with them some fat, whether it's polyunsaturated, mono or, uh, saturated henceforth, there is never a reason to overeat fat because the protein will generally bring an adequate amount with it, um, this is what makes the carnivore diet so powerful. It's so simple. It, it really is. It's just a question of whether you can get in the required calories for the day because it's so satiating. Um, that's, that's the only thing. Like, uh, I don't know about you, BG, but I will generally fail to meet my, uh, caloric requirement for protein on most days because it's that difficult to overeat. Um, oh, yeah. it, it's, it, you know what I mean? And, and so, um, and, and you generally tend to under eat calories when you're on these type of diets that we're on, um, automatically. So excess calories and cancers, those two go hand in hand. A carnivore diet makes you under eat calories. So you do the math there, you know? Yeah,
0: yeah. absolutely. It's, it's like, it's like auto regulation. It's like, I don't even have to track macros and calories because when I eat, I'm eating when I'm hungry and you know, I have a normal relationship with food. I've effortlessly lost almost 20 pounds since uh, January without any hunger, without even actively trying to diet. So it's just kind of like, and I've been through the gamut with diets. We've talked about this in other episodes. I've tried everything. And yes, I have lost weight other ways, lost body fat, but just that struggle to adhere. The hunger was, the cravings were impossible. Like you just snap. And I'm, I'm someone with pretty good discipline, I think pretty good self control, but I just couldn't do it until this. It just makes it, Effortless, it's automatic which you know, I can't emphasize enough to our viewers like it's just it's incredible the effects it has on on just Fixing everything on its own without you really having to think too much about it
1: so, uh, Absolutely, I, I almost look at it as an anti-diet, you know, um, you know, it's it's not a diet a, a diet sort of um, The connotations that it conjures is is that it's somehow restrictive in some way but this is in fact well you're, you're satiated and satiated. Uh, to be satiated is key. Um, I, I think what would be really interesting in the future is application of these types of diets to eating disorders. Um, I think that might be a really good way to, to, to sort of approach eating disorders because um, that's something that's poorly handled, I think, by the, by the healthcare industry um that's in males and females uh you know what i mean it's becoming more prevalent in males as well and this is this whole calorie counting culture which i think we've got to we've got to try and move away from um you know in the in the future it's not healthy
0: it's artificial we didn't we didn't know what calories were you know hundreds of years ago um or i don't know how long ago but you know most of our existence as humans we didn't look at calories we didn't know what it was and didn't know how to track it and it's on the note of eating disorders. Anecdotally, I've seen on these Facebook groups for, you know, carnivore-type diets, a lot of people have, you know, recovered from eating disorders eating this way. Like, they fell out. You know, they become, like, it's not, it's, a diet is not just about losing weight. It's about doing what's best for you, makes you healthy. Um, and, you know, for some people, that will be gaining weight. Um, so, it's it's remarkable that it can help people with that kind of stuff, too. So, definitely, I agree. Something to look into as a possible therapy for these patients
1: absolutely yeah 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 i mean i don't want to oversimplify there's many factors including psychological factors that go into eating disorders but but imagine a diet that that keeps you lean keeps you fit um and also allows for satiation it's kind of almost a perfect solution Mm -hmm. uh to the problem to the problem yeah
0: and I guess on that note, sorry guys, uh, like the vitamins and minerals, would you agree that you can get everything you need from this kind of a diet, or what? What are your what's your take
4: on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's varying schools of thought with this. I know Sean Baker, who I respect greatly. Um, you know, he's spoken about the, you know, not requiring things like organ meats, but but I struggle to see how we can get our complete uh, requirement for vitamins on these type of diets without, without something like liver added to the system. I think um, it's just so nutrient dense that it would be, it would I think it, it'd kind of be a disservice to, to the diet if we were not including things like liver uh, for, for the nutrient density. It's, it, it, I, I think if liver could be thrown in along with some marine-based food, uh, it, it, it's a complete diet. I think it could be easily done without fruits and vegetables.
3: Okay, great. Mm-hmm. I was also just saying um, for people who have eating disorders, eating this way is also very sustainable. Like you could do it for a really long time. It would provide your body with all of the nutrients. Whereas, you know, you brought up a good point. I've never actually thought about um, what kind of diets individuals with eating disorders are put on and just going down that rabbit hole right now is like, stressing me out because i'm thinking like what kind of diets do nutritionists or or health professionals put these people on and how sustainable are yeah, these yeah. diets and how does that work out in the long term right well,
1: yeah absolutely the 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 dietary advice i'd love to know but I, i'm i'm sure they're telling these people just eat just eat just low just fat maybe just <laughs> yeah just yeah that's right but but the reality at the core of what this person wants is, is to be lean. It's a body dysmorphia of sort. And, um, it's a very, very complicated area, but, um, it's becoming a real problem. I mean, I don't know what the rates in Canada are like, but, um, it's becoming increasingly more prevalent here in Australia amongst our young uh, males and females and and more needs to be done. We can't just simply medicate them and and utilize the same tired uh, Dietary paradigms. It just doesn't work that, uh, Very well, so I think I think we have to be open and curious and explore new avenues and um, certainly as Vijit said anecdotally there is just you know, so much uh, benefit to eating this way. And um, um, uh, our dietitian Jessica, she's given multiple talks on this before, and she's been open with her uh, struggles as a young woman with um, eating disorders and, and, and a low carbohydrate diet innately was just right for her. Um, and it's it's something that helped resolve a lot of those type of issues. And she's given some fantastic talks on that. So it's it's um, it's nice to see the anecdotal evidence, but we need more. We need randomized control trials. We need good quality data to be yeah. able to ap- apply it from a clinical perspective.
0: Yeah, and that's I mean that's kind of the language that you know medical practitioners in particular need. I mean, anytime I've sort of presented these ideas to people, they're like, "Well, where's the RCT?" Which is you know we can go down a whole rabbit hole discussion of that, but it's it's very difficult ethically to ethically and financially to construct proper RCTs with diet. It's very difficult to control uh, for confounders, unless you put people on like a metabolic ward and monitor everything they're eating or doing. So it's tough, but definitely, you know, if we had that, that would be huge to to propel this uh, forward.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Um, Do you guys have any other questions for Pran?
4: Uh, We can sneak one last minute one in Uh, Dr. Pran. I've been very curious about this one. I haven't been able to find an answer anywhere. Uh, the meters love their carbonated water okay um, this has been the replacement for I guess pop whatever whatever it is something about that fizz we just love but we're we're quite concerned like we do consume a lot of carbonated water I wanted to know if there's any risk associated with that if, if there's anything at all that you would know that you would be um, worried about uh, is there too much carbonated water that you can drink
1: uh, it's a good question, actually. It's one that's been put to me before by one of my clients. I, I've been meaning to look into it, and I might yeah. have to get back to you on that. But sure. I don't think from a nutritional perspective there is any any issues there. It's a zero zero carb drink, um, and it gives – in fact, when I transition people onto these um, – Onto these diets, which is low carb, we actually recommend um, recommend carbonated water. in those that are drinking a yeah. lot of fizzy drinks and so forth, it's a great way to transition them on. But what would be interesting is the um, is the uh, to to know is what, what are the effects on bone, um, especially mm-hmm. with regards to all these minerals, whether there is a a stripping effects of sort uh, sorts. But um, it's it's been a question that's been put to me, and I'll have to come back with a more um comprehensive answer for you guys perhaps i'll do a post on this in the coming coming weeks once once i've explored that yeah
3: yeah i just i wonder because Mm. when i when we drink it i feel fine but i do burp so yeah yeah yeah
0: yeah.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. you know because i i don't really burp anymore eating this yes i don't burp i don't experience any uh bloating unless you know i eat something that, that my body doesn't really agree with or like anymore
1: there is certainly a gas component that you're taking in with the, with the drink and, and that's all that your body's expelling and considering you don't have much in the way of gut based gas through the foods that you're consuming, your gut's just simply sensitive to it. (laughs) Um, Yeah. You know, it's just more sensitive to it. It's a, it's a concept we call visceral hypersensitivity in our field it's it's um you're just more aware of your gut and there are certain people that are just more aware about their gut Mm. and if you've been eating low carb with very little gas production all of a sudden there is um you know you, you just feel it more
2: cool
0: that's interesting and that transition comment super interesting too i didn't know you guys did that like for me i was like a coke zero junkie like i needed to have that all day especially while i was working and obviously, I'm trying to clean up my diet on carnivores, So I thought, okay, well, I'll go to carbonated water like San Pellegrino. So I was having that for a while. And I really, really needed that for a short period of maybe two, three months. But then I mm. suddenly lost the desire even for that. Like I'm good with just regular tap water now, even though it is enjoyable to yeah. have it. It's just it's funny how you can kind of ramp down from that sort of jacked up, high processed food state to eating only whole foods, really
1: you're basically killing the microbiome that craves you know what i mean like it's mm-hmm. when we when we crave something it's not us craving it really it's our microbiome that we've been feeding um so they'll generally call for the foods that they're they utilize, that utilized and, and used so if through willpower you, you starve a microbiome out and, and, and select for a new type of microbiome, well, that's how cravings work. And this is why people on low-carb diets tend to, they tend to crave a lot more in the way of steaks and so forth. After they've done it for a long enough period, they'll crave fish or they'll crave some weird stuff, they crave butter, you know um, because this is the type of, this is the type of bacteria that you have selected for. You've chosen that, and they, they, they control all cravings. Your microbiome does. That's
0: super interesting,
1: interesting. fascinating. So
3: it's like that little monster inside of you. you (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: hundred percent. Forty trillion uh, monsters inside (laughs) of us. Uh, It's an an, an absolutely enormous bank um, that we carry with us. Uh, There's more bacterial DNA there in us than than there is human DNA, and they're an integral part of our digestive tract.
0: The little, little food gremlins or something
1: like that, I guess. Yeah, that's
0: right. Um, so, Pran, I mean, I guess that brings us to the end of the podcast. But I guess, you know, before we go, do you have any kind of unifying message that you have for some of our viewers? Maybe people who have come here to learn. Maybe they're suffering from some problems or thinking about making changes. Like, what would you leave them with?
1: Sure. I, I think I think the advice that I'd give, um, this is the advice that I give most people, is is really forget the – dietary dogmas Um, if you're unhealthy the dietary dogmas have not worked for you in any case do something different Um, embrace a way of eating which is ancestral look at our past to see how we've eaten before eat animals that are eating what they're supposed to eat you know when we talk about cows we talk about grass-fed finished animals that have not been introduced to grain Um, wild caught fish Um, if if we can start introducing these type of foods you really optimize the human diet Um, and uh, it's important to understand that vegetables whilst they provide some nutritional benefit they are probably overrated fruits are definitely overrated there's better ways to obtain the nutrients found in fruits Um, and I'd embrace a method of eating that is kind of old school that that brings back cooking with butter that, that embraces eating things like organ meats. Um, I think there's a lot of wisdom in the past, which we've forgotten. Um, this modern world is not what it's hyped out to be uh, hyped up to be. I think there is, whilst there's a lot of knowledge, we're confused with the extent of knowledge that's, uh, poured upon us, um, with, with the, with the rise of internet and so forth. And there's just so many experts in inverted commas in the field, uh, providing their own advice. So it is a highly confusing food environment. So I think simplifying it and utilizing an ancestral method of eating is, 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 is the way to do it. Um, and I'm really, um, it's nice to see uh, people like yourselves um, doing doing these sort of podcasts with, with people in the field or in the space, uh, because it really is incentivizing thought. Um, and for a lot of people, it's just kind of having to experiment with their own bodies to realize that this works. Um, and we'd encourage at least a six-week trial of it.
0: Yeah, for sure. Brilliant. Oh, thank you so much. I mean, honestly, that was uh, an awesome podcast. I don't know about you guys, but this is one of my favorite episodes so far. So, yeah. Like, uh, on- oh, Thank you
1: guys. It means a lot. Thank you.
0: No problem. Yeah. On, on our behalf, on our viewers behalf, thank you so much for spending time with us. I know you're busy uh, with work. Uh, you're up early in the morning. I think it was 7am when we started this. So we really appreciate you taking the time out. And uh, on the note of sort of social media and being in the space, we're going to definitely link to your Instagram. I guess that's probably the easiest place for people to find you you're fairly active and, and maybe the link to your clinic. And if, is there anything else you have that you want people to connect with you over any other points? of contact? Uh,
1: no, in the Insta- Instagram's kind of my preferred medium. I, I think it's just such a visual medium and, and that's where I'm most active. I'm on Twitter uh, occasionally and, and on Facebook as well, but Instagram's where I tend to do most of my work. So I'm happy for people to follow me there and, and listen to um, listen to what I do. I have to say or my perspective on it
0: okay yeah we'll definitely get that information out to people so they can find you so again thank you so much and to our viewers thank you for your time we hope you found it useful and informative and we will see you guys at the next episode thanks guys have, have a good one till you. See you guys